thank you for listening to the MicroBinFeed podcast. Here we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There's so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody really writes it down. There's no manual, and it is assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan of Enterobase, Grape Tree, and Break Fame, and Dr. Andrew Page of such works as Plasmatron 5000, Rory, and Gubbins. I am Dr. Lee Katz, and you might know me from my tree-making pipeline mastery or my SNP pipeline live set. Both Nabil and Andrew work at the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where we work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct professor at the University of Georgia in the US. Hello, and welcome to the Microbial Bioinformatics Podcast. Andrew and I are your co-hosts today. Nabil is on a much needed break. Our guests today are Kevin Libouet and Curtis Kapsack. They each started off with a college track in biology and then graduated with a master's in biology from James Madison University. Kevin was the lead bioinformatics scientist in the Virginia State Public Health Lab, DCLS, and a founder of the Staff B Workgroup. Most recently, he joined the bioinformatics contracting world through Theogen Genomics with Curtis Kapsack and Joel Savinsky. Curtis began his career in Colorado with Joel Savinsky for just a mere eight months before we nabbed him as a contractor at CDC on my team. However, in just the last two years, Joel has started his own company to help public health labs and has already started subcontracting. It is bittersweet that Curtis is now one of those subcontractors with Joel and has left my team. Okay, so Kevin, you've had uh, quite an interesting career so far. You're, you know, you're not that old, uh, certainly a lot younger than me. And uh, you've gone from biology into bioinformatics, and then you went into the state labs, and now you've gone into industry. So you've got quite a nice range of activities that you've gone through. So first of all, tell me about, well, why did you go into bioinformatics from biology? Why didn't you just kind of stay in that uh, beautiful world of uh, pipetting and white lab coats? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I'm glad we're talking about this on the career aspect too, because I definitely know I have a bit more of an unorthodox path to, to, got, to have gotten where I've gotten. And uh, I like sharing this ideas out there because I'm sure there's some uh, early career or even students uh, who are looking into a career and not knowing you know, how to make their own path. So uh, I've had the opportunity to do that and been mentored by a lot of people uh, that, that have given me that opportunity. So at the jump though, the, even how I got into biology is how I think a lot of at least US biologists get into biology in that, you know, we get into university and, you know, we, we have some, some level of a, a draw to sciences and we want to help people. And that's kind of like our baseline heuristic of, of how we decide our majors and things. And, you know, if you go into an undergraduate institution in the US and you look at the biology majors, you're going to see like an overwhelming focus on pre-med. So like, you know, you come in with those two, two basic premises. I like sciences and I want to help people. The only careers available to us in, in our minds that have like, you know, a level of prestige as well is being a, a physician. And so a lot of us get into biology thinking, okay, we like the sciences. We want to help people. Let's be physicians. On that route, I think a couple of things happen to a lot of students, first of which we, under, we start to understand what it means to be a physician and what that world actually looks like. And, and some of us decide, I don't know if that's necessarily the route I want to go. And that's actually what happened to me. So I got into a research laboratory at James Madison University with the intent to bolster my med school application. But as a product of that, I found how much I really enjoyed 
bi biological research and, and contributing to the scientific uh, discussion. So I was no, at that point, it wasn't just uh, biology was being taught to me, but I was really having a participation in the conversation that is biology that sort of seeded an interest in me and like opened a whole new career door of career opportunities of like, okay, I maybe a career in sciences is the, the, the route I want to start walking. And so I did that. So I, I really dove into the research uh, laboratory that I was in under uh, Dr. James Herrick at James Madison. Uh, at, at that lab is where I met Curtis and we started working together. And, and you know, Curtis can speak on this as well, but we come from that similar uh, uh, path in that Curtis was pre-med and we, we both like found a real love for, for research and, and communicating the ideas that, that, that were our own. And then so Curtis and I were in a, a traditional microbiology lab and we had the white coats and, and we had the pipettes. Though I will say our, our white coats were tie-dyed purple and gold, <laughs> <laughs> our university colors, of which I think, yeah, we've since handed down to the university and, and they still use those tie-dyed lab coats. Um, yeah. So we were, the, we were those guys. <laughs> can, I, can I add, I think Dr. Please. Herrick still teaches in those tie-dye lab coats. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, so, um, and, and then also there, were, there was, a, you know, not to speak against anybody who's going the pre-med route, but it is relatively competitive to be uh, on that route, especially in the U.S., Whereas, you know, in the, in the research world, like even, you know, uh, evidenced by this tie-dye community thing, but there was a collaborative spirit that we really enjoyed. And that, you know, as we talked in the, in the last recording about Staff B, like that spirit of collaboration and communication and open source uh, development is, is something that, you know, Curtis and I were exposed to early on in, in the research world um, and, and that being uh, what really drew us to it. So, so where, but, where did uh, you first get uh, exposed to bioinformatics and sequencing yeah. data and things like that? Yeah, so our focus at, at, at university was on uh, antimicrobial resistance and, and the horizontal gene transfer elements of plasmids. And so at first we were focusing on, you know, what is the observable antimicrobial resistance in the environments we were in investigating. And so a natural follow-up question to that is, okay, we're, we have started to define the phenotype. What is the genotype behind this? And so right after, or as we were working on our programs or our, our projects, the university got a ion torrent actually sequencer at the university. And so uh, our, our, our PI was like, hey, you guys want to sequence this? Uh, was it one of the original uh, PGMs with the iPod dock? Yep. Yes. Yes, it was. Awesome. And it was, it, was, it was a wild experience. I think like my first year of my master's program was learning how to run the ion torrent PGM. And, and it was, it's amazing. You know, it's funny because like throughout my whole career, I've always had like professors and, 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 and uh, mentors who talked about, oh man, you, you don't understand how far the technology has come. But now even like just five years into my career, I can say that same sentence of like how difficult it was to just sequence one plasmid on the ion torrent PGM. Now I'm helping laboratories sequence thousands of SARS-CoV-2 samples without even, you know, batting an eye. But either way, so the, yeah, so we got into sequencing through the, the university procuring some instruments and also through a collaboration with Oxford Nanopore in their early access program. So we learned how to sequence uh, samples and generate data. Then we had a bunch of data. And then, so just, you know, to complete the thesis, it was learning how to analyze these data. So uh, Curtis and I were really lucky enough to, to be mentored by uh, Dr. Stephen Turner, who at the time was the director at the UVA bioinformatics core. We kind of learned by observation. He would do an analysis, he would share the scripts with us, and then Curtis and I would try to in some way recapitulate what was happening and ensuring that we can generate the same outputs. And then we found a real love in, in the, the computational world. Uh, I think like in, in Curtis can speak on his own, own side of this, but I, I just like the quicker feedback loops relative to growing microbes and 
You know, when people talk about lab hands, that's a thing, right? There's like a bit of an art to being a good uh, wet lab scientist. And that was a skill set I was less inclined to develop relative to my computational skills. So I just prefer the quicker feedback loops and, and being able to also scale what we were building. You know, we talked about the containers and, and how wide, widely distributed that is. Uh, that, that was a big draw for us. And then when I graduated, that was also the needed skill set in public health. And, and, and that's kind of where my career has taken off from there. I agree with all of what Kevin said. He says it so well. I too was on the pre-med track. I wanted to be a doctor. Uh, I watched a lot of the TV show uh, House MD and uh, Hugh Laurie was my idol, <laughs> right? But I, I too fell in love with research and eventually dropped the pre-med program and, and pursued uh, research. You know, I, I, I did my undergrad in biology and stuck around for a master's to, to dive deeper into it as well. So yeah, I agree with all of what Kevin said. Sorry, can uh, I say on the point of Hugh Laurie, uh, have you seen uh-huh. Blackadder? Uh-uh, no. Oh, you have to see it. it it's okay. quite a different, uh, <laughs> a different uh, side of Hugh. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Blackadder, it's a classic British uh, TV comedy show. I'll be looking that up. One caveat, yeah. I think the US perspective of Hugh is much different than you know the European perspective of Hugh. You guys know him as yeah. like the sort of goofy gaggy guy with like humor and uh his work with um oh my gosh i can't believe i don't I'm not coming uh, Stephen fry Stephen fry and in like the the kind of a a funny niche of like high hyper academic funny people right but then we were introduced to he Laurie as like this serious actor investigative md guy yeah i was introduced to hugh Laurie as the passenger who sat next to rachel in friends <laughs> that that was the one that i got that's good. That's good. That's so he made, funny. He made an impressionable cameo on Friends. <laughs> yeah, but but getting to what Curtis is saying, I think this that's why I like I love a podcast like this because Curtis and I come from that same world. We 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 didn't know what else you did with liking science and wanting to help people. So it's like that was the one career that was broadcast to us. Like a guy who thinks about problems deeply and helps people. It was like that was our media of entertainment so like Hugh Laurie was was and Dr. House was the sort of idol that that we we uh we found um so yeah podcasts like this and I want to give a shout out to the to the Skype a scientist program is a really incredible program um I'll, I'll I'll give some more information I wish I had the the names up uh, at the top of mind but it, it's an initiative to expose students to professional scientists in a way that they can start to relate and understand what are the different professional avenues available to them if they have some uh, affinity to the, the sciences and, and also, you know, altruism and wanting to impact the community in a positive way. So you uh, did some bioinformatics in your master's and then what did you do next? We, we okay. both sort of did a similar thing. I believe Kevin started an internship first at the Virginia State Lab, yep, yep. Um, but immediately following, he started his APHL slash CDC bioinformatics fellowship, right? And so for those that don't know, APHL is the Association of Public Health Labs. They're a nonprofit organization that supports um, public health labs across the country. Um, they interface with the CDC, uh, with many other organizations I'm, I'm not listing here, but um, they offer a, a one or two year bioinformatics fellowship where you're placed at either a state lab um, or a CDC federal lab and you spend either a year or two developing bioinformatics skills working on a number of projects 
um, that that lab, your host laboratory is participating in. So Kevin did his fellowship at the Virginia State Lab, and I was placed at the, the Colorado State Lab for, for my fellowship. So that, for me, was when I really dove into doing bioinformatics full-time. Um, whereas in my master's, it was a mix of wet lab you know, science and microbiology and prepping DNA for sequencing, but also a little bit of bioinformatics. But now it's full-time bioinformatics all day, every day, and I love it. <laughs> So that, that initial placement that you had, were you, you, I hope you weren't the lone bioinformatician, you know, and you actually had mentors on site to actually guide you through all of this different stuff. Yes. Yep. You make a great point. Yes. Yeah, so as part of that fellowship program, the laboratory that is going to host you also uh, requires there to be a mentor there and for, you know, given projects for the fellow to, to do during their time. So I, I was very lucky to have an amazing mentor, Joel Savinsky. I spent eight months there at the Colorado Lab, um, learning a whole lot and, and learning a lot from Joel, as well as the previous bioinformatics fellow, Logan Fink. He was, he was there. So I was lucky to not be a lone bioinformatician. Um, I had the support of, of both Joel and Logan, but also that time is when I was introduced to the Staff B community. And you know, there started a, we, the Steffi started a Slack channel, which has been very, very useful and valuable to communicate with all the bioinformatics scientists at the state labs and, and CDC as well. And yeah, so it's, it's been a, a great uh, environment to be a part of because everybody, you know, they're in the, in pursuit of the same goal of, of improving public health. So it's a, it's a very great environment to be a part of, uh, great people to work with. And not to put another back in my day comment here, but <laughs> even though Curtis was, I think, just a year or two after me in terms of uh, starting his bioinformatics fellowship, when I started my bioinformatics fellowship, my cohort, we didn't really, no one, there was no extant bioinformatics mentor at any public health laboratory, really. So that, and that I say that to say how incredibly quickly APHL CDC bioinformatics program has grown and matured because at this point now any fellow that is is taken on they have uh, a whole community of practitioners that they can plug into whether or not their host institution has you know card carrying bioinformatics scientists to mentor that incoming fellow nonetheless they're going to have guidance uh, throughout the entire staff the community so how far then rabbit hole did you go i mean were you guys learning about genomic epidemiology and uh you know actually going and investing in the outbreaks and things like that for your state or were you stopping more at the infrastructure bioinformatics analysis end so i think there was like three main pillars of bioinformatics integration when when i started and I, these are are starting to be solved in uh, to a large extent but these are still i think the the, the biggest challenges that we were facing is uh, coming into public health because especially in 2016, I think I had mentioned um, either on this or the, the previous podcast, I was the only bioinformatics scientist in the state of Virginia in the mid-Atlantic region. There was challenges on every front. And the, and the three main challenges was infrastructure development, like, like you had mentioned, Andrew, like getting the compute resources to support this work. Um, the other major challenge was workforce development. Okay, now I'm speaking a completely different language than the, the collaborators that I'm working with in my host institution. So getting them up to speed on, on what this technology is and how does it inform public health. And then the third pillar is doing the actual bioinformatics work itself, uh, getting the tools to run on the resources that the laboratory has, and then starting to perform those analytical processes of genomic epidemiology. But I think 
even before any of that, the first things I was actually working on was quality control. And that was also a big change from academics versus being in public health. And not to say, obviously, quality is, is of utmost importance in every field, but in public health, you know, it informs action, government action and intervention. So it's held to a different standard. So it, at Virginia, that is absolutely the motto is, is standing behind the quality of the data that we end up reporting. So that's where Denise Tony, the director of DCLS, wanted to focus a lot of my time is on uh, ensuring we had quality control set. So that's, that's where we were starting. Over the past five years, then we started to get into the more you know, biological questions of genetic relatedness, genomic epidemiology, AMR detection, and everything in between there. But it started first with, can we have confidence in the data we're generating? And so I presume you guys started with one pathogen and then you kind of snowball from there as people got more used to the, using it actually for taking action in public health labs. So what organisms did you start off with and then how did you see that progress over your, your time in those labs? Yeah, so for me, what I was uh, working on uh, primarily in Colorado was enteric foodborne pathogens. So Salmonella, Enterica, E. coli, those were the probably the, the two pathogens that were sequenced in the highest volume. But we also worked on other pathogens that are, that are important to the PulseNet program. So things like uh, Listeria, Campylobacter, Shigella. Don't, don't worry about hitting on yeah. all of them. There are too okay. many. So after enterics, uh, I had the opportunity to work on some HII pathogens, some Klebsiella, some Citrobacter, I believe, and a few others here and there. Um, and then post-fellowship, I was working full-time on enteric pathogens at CEC. And, and now in my, my role, it's full-time SARS-CoV-2. So I've made a, a quick transition and I'm, I'm learning a whole lot now. <laughs> Welcome to the club. It's, it's been my life for the past year. And I know Lee has been dragged in. Nabil obviously works for me, so he's been doing it for a year. I think everyone now has been dragged into SARS-CoV-2 uh, in some way or another. I have exited. We'll miss you on the toast team, man. Yeah, your presence is missed on the toast team. Thanks. <laughs> so I've heard, I've heard how you guys have transitioned from biology into bioinformatics, and then you went, and then yada, 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 you were in the APHL Bioinformatics Fellowship. How did you guys decide on public health? Like, go. I mean, I think it's a great career choice, obviously, but I mean, that it is different than going into medicine. What made you go in, or, or you know, other academic kind of laboratory science, what made you go oh. to public health? Yeah, that, that, that's a great question and something I don't actually think about often enough, but my professional network uh, was growing and those opportunities became exposed to me strictly through my professional network. I didn't, I mean, I kind of knew what public health was and like I knew what the CDC was and what the FDA was, but I didn't know a single public health scientist. Uh, but my PI, Dr. James Herrick at JMU, he's really proactive in connecting with the, the different industries. And, and he kind of broke down, okay, there's government work, there's industry work, and then, uh, you know, everything else in between. And he had a project with I think it was started with the FDA in Genome Tracker, and they were trying to, you know, uh, decentralize some of the surveillance sequencing efforts. And then that got him in contact with DCLS. And, it, it, and so all, all that to say, a lot of that was outside of my control. And it was kind of the first professional opportunity that got presented to me. As I was graduating, the one priority I had in mind was that I wanted to be able to travel, take some time off to travel to South America, right? And so I, I figured, okay, I'm going to graduate. 
it's going to take some time to uh, find a job. I might as well, you know, I, I pursue the, the, this, this, the traveling bug I have here. And I didn't even concern myself with professional job seeking quite yet. So I, I kind of had that as a plan. And then Dr. James Herrick said, hey, Virginia public health system, they're looking to bring on bioinformatics applications into the lab. Uh, would you be willing to do this? And I was like, hey, you know, uh, I'm really trying to spend some time in South America. I'm not sure if I could do it. And then he said, well, it's completely remote. You're going to be doing cloud computing. So I thought, okay, okay, I think I could do this. So my first bioinformatics position with the state government, I served from Bogota, Colombia. And I was able to do that through AWS cloud computing that was made available to me. So that's how I got in. So that in terms of how I chose public health, I hate to use this, but public health chose me, right? Like it was the opportunities aligned. My professor had an opportunity that aligned with being able to also travel in, in, in the way that I wanted to travel. So uh, that's how I came into public health and I was made aware of it. And then I, I realized how much everything that I, I, I wanted to do in terms of applying science, applying deep thinking and helping the community was already there in public health. So any advocacy for more public health scientists in, in podcasts like this, this is what I, I'm an advocate for it. I want to, more people to realize that this is a career opportunity here. That is super interesting. I never knew that about you, that you worked remotely there. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't tell DCLS until a couple of, like a year later. I was like, oh, by the way, that fellowship, like it was completely remote. I, I was in Bogota <laughs> and it was like, <laughs> And, 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 you know, it was, it, it worked out. I had cloud computing and, and even now that that skill set of using cloud resources allows, you know, Curtis and I, for example, we have international partners now. Just the other day, we were helping CDC Thailand analyze their MinION data. And that's all based on these Google cloud distributed resources, something that I picked up by being in Bogota <laughs> and helping DCLS on their first bioinformatics initiative for, uh, I think it was, uh, it was probably Salmonella. At that point, yeah. So, can I ask, uh, what happened with your honeymoon? Oh, okay, okay, yes, yeah, the good question. Okay, and so it wasn't a honeymoon. So it was. This was a sabbatical uh, story that that's worth telling. So, 2016, I got into public health bioinformatics at DCLS, and you know, I had a crazy opportunity to really be a part of the building of a program, and then that turned into uh, a mid Atlantic. Uh, regional lead for bioinformatics. And it was an incredible opportunity. And I got to be a part of the national conversation at a really early stage. And my wife, who's a physician assistant, she also has a, a pretty, you know, demanding job in, in her life. And, you know, in, in early on in our marriage, this was okay. We, we understood our professional pursuits and things like this, but we also made the personal decision that we want to take some time away from our professional lives and pursue some of our personal interests. And so in 2019, we had made the decision that 2020 was the year that we were going to have a, a, a bit of a self-funded sabbatical. We were going to do an international trip uh, where we had things set up in Spain, in Vietnam, in Argentina. Um, you know, I'm in public health, she's in healthcare. So we, we had a couple of professional things set up with educating uh, laboratories there. And she was going to work in the hospital systems. I applied to the Fulbright funding. So I was like on the roster. So I had like some funding available to me there as well. And 2020 was going to be the year we could relax and, and, and enjoy ourselves and, and focus on like, you know, things that we wanted to focus on, uh, on a personal level, you know, just as husband and wife. And so we made that announcement in 2019. And it was like, Hey, this has been great guys. Like, but we're going abroad. Right. And then, you know, as I think I was scheduled to leave in February and then we had travels all the way up until uh, the end of the year, uh, 2020. Of course, you know, that all got thrown to the side 
because of uh, the global pandemic. So I ended up staying with uh, Virginia's public health lab until July or so. This allowed me to develop a lot of their critical SARS-CoV-2 bioinformatics uh, resources there and also hire and train my replacement. So, you know, not wanting to just leave uh, at a time where, you know, a global pandemic is happening. So that, that gave us opportunity to do that. Nonetheless, my wife and I still had this desire to spend some time between she and I. And if anything, you know, being in a global pandemic, I think highlights the need uh, of, of taking time for your professional pursuits, uh, especially, you know, uh, it, as a husband and wife, my wife and I saw that as, as an utmost priority, um, if, if anything, highlighted by a global pandemic. So in July of last year, um, once I knew DCLS was set with my replacement and they had the base infrastructure for SARS-CoV-2 analysis, we ended up leaving. And so instead of an international trip, we took a, a three-month domestic uh, sabbatical in, in which we, um, you know, we envisioned like, you know, meeting people in cities and learning languages and doing all these things. But what it came to be was spending a lot of times in the, the back country of America, like national parks, national forests, a lot of backpacking and camping and seeing the, the amazing spread of uh, geography in the U.S. Um, and at that time too, still, you know, being able to focus on learning, you know, who, who I am and, and who my wife is, you know, like throughout early stages of my career, uh, I remember it was kind of a funny feeling getting like subject matter expert kind of put associated with my name. And that's, you know, that was a testament to how much time and, 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 and mentorship I had throughout my career. But in the same respect, you know, I wanted to be a subject matter expert of, of, being a husband, uh, being a supportive uh, partner to my wife of knowing who I am is outside of my professional uh, endeavors. So that three months allowed us to do that. I will say though, too, it was still pretty scary to do. Uh, leaving a position that I was in as a lead scientist at, at DCLS, that's a position a lot of people seek from the onset as like the goal position to stay in, being a lead scientist at that level. And um, But knowing that this was something that my wife and I wanted to do. We made the jump, we made the leap of faith there. And now being on the other side of it, it's only helped my career. It, it, it's, it's helped to uh, you know, further underline who I am and why I want to do what it is I do. I had the time to take a step back and reflect you know, what it is I wanna do with my career and how I wanna contribute to, to what's happening in, in our community. And, um, and the time off has allowed me to you know, come back with a clearer mind and, and now working with Theogen, uh, we're working at 100 miles an hour, so it's a pace that I don't know that I could sustain if I had not been able to take some time away and then step back into the community. It was kind of scary taking three months off, and maybe that's not true for Europeans. I think Europeans have a different work-life uh, balance and culture on leave and things like that, but not many people do that in the U.S., uh, but now being on the other side of it, it's like, oh, that was like a blip in the career. No one even mentions it that much anymore. It's like, it, it, it's, it hasn't in any way negatively impacted my, my career opportunities. If anything, it's been a cool talking point that people can relate to on more of a personal level and, and kind of opens the doors uh, for communication in that way. I still remember the bad luck Brian uh, meme you made <laughs> that day. It's like, plans a, a international honeymoon, but pandemic. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, and, and yeah, DCLS was really supportive about it. Uh, I think uh, you guys see this as well, but the public health community does a great job of, of recognizing the, the people that are public health scientists and, and you know, recognizing that this is a, a demanding job. And, you know, when people need to take off, I think uh, I've only seen encouragement in that respect. Um, whereas, you know, internally in my mental dialogue, I didn't, I thought it would be looked at as a smudge or like selfish in some way, but it really hasn't been the case in any way at all. 
I mean, in European terms, three months is nothing, you know, it's yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a long weekend. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, okay. So uh, you've made the jump into, into contracting. So that must give you a huge variety of projects to work on, or is it more focused just on say SARS-CoV-2 because everything is focused on that these days? Yeah. With being in the contracting world, it is, there is yeah more explicit objectives in that way, but it also still gives us the wide variety of uh, partners that we can work with at DCLS. You know, I was in Virginia and Virginia was my priority as you know, and I don't say that as, as any kind of negative or anything like that, but um, being on the independent contractor side, I have, you know, whomever needs uh, this kind of resource can be a, a potential partner of mine. Um, like I had mentioned, you know, we're working at international scale now too, being having an opportunity to work with APHL and CDC Thailand, but at the same time, the local laboratories throughout the U.S. that, that, that I had very little interaction with um, at DCLS. And then also broaden the scope in terms of, you know, there's, there's a, a influx of funding and resources to public health for SARS-CoV-2, uh, but we also realize that because we have this opportunity for funding and resources, we need to make sure that we take advantage of that to uh, beyond just SARS-CoV-2. You know, it's, I don't know if in our lifetime we'll see another kind of resource influx in the way that we're seeing right now. So we need to be able to, to capitalize on that and ensure, yeah, ensure that we have uh, uh, other infectious diseases in mind uh, as we develop these things. So there's a huge priority on SARS-CoV-2, but also the, the objective being written in for other infectious disease surveillance as well. So, so can I ask what type of support are you giving? Are you like setting up the infrastructure, bioinformatics infrastructure for SARS-CoV-2, or are you doing a day-to-day analysis or are you doing training? Yeah. You know, like there's so many different things you can possibly do and uh, you yeah. can't do it wrong, sure. I think this is getting into kind of like the technological innovations that have happened in the field in the past, you know, five years. So in the last podcast, we were talking about Docker containers kind of revolutionizing how we do things. And to me, there was like, there's three of those major events that, that have happened in public health. Docker is being one of them. So once Docker's happened, you know, there's there's no need to put a markdown file of how you're downloading this thing locally anymore. It's like just use the Docker container. The other thing I saw come up, come about uh, maybe 2019, 2020 was workflow languages. So now we can, you know, it, it's it's a much simpler language. You can it, it's modular and you can start writing these workflow languages. What we're seeing now is the kind of next step is web applications that tie workflow languages with a backend cloud computing infrastructure. And so what this allows us to do is write the sort of technical bioinformatics workflow, but then immediately give access to these tools to a non-technical user. Um, So that is, has been kind of our our model of distribution with, with Theogen Genomics and kind of pioneered with uh, obviously the Broad Institute and then Joel Savinsky's adoption of, of that methodology. So in terms of support, this this also gets to the scalability of these kind of practices. I can build a SARS-CoV-2 workflow that's in the you know the Whittle workflow language, make it available through Terra, the web application from the Broad Institute that that connects Google Cloud resources and Whittle workflows. And once I build that one time, I can support a whole range of laboratories because it's more than anything. And now it's just about training them on how to use these these inputs and how to use these workflows, configure their inputs and understand their outputs. And that could be done in a scalable way. You know, we have a couple of YouTube videos walking through people how to use this. And, and now there's more people than, than, you know, I can keep up with who, who have access to these tools where, you know, two, three years ago, supporting this many labs is, is absolutely unthinkable. But now we have a sort of centralized system 
a centralized system that is inherently distributable. Um, it allows us to, to support as many labs as we are, are, are right now. And Curtis is doing work on the data transfer and all the other technical details involved in that too. Yeah. So Curtis, maybe to you, um, sure. what are the inputs into your containers and workflows? Is it like the fast five level or is it fast queue or is it something more refined and not like say VCF files? Um, so I'm new and I'm still learning the workflows, but so Kevin, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the inputs are fast queues for, for both Illumina and Nanopore platforms. Um, there, I think the input is fast queues and then a table with metadata on the various samples. Um, so Terra accept a, you know, a simple CSV table, you import it, you point it to the data, which is stored on Google storage, um, you know, Google buckets and then click go. So I just, I just wanted to add that it's, it's incredible. Like I've been here as part of Theogen for what, five days now. And I've, I've been able to witness uh, multiple labs uh, get up and running with analyzing SARS-CoV-2 genomes within an hour. If, if they have the data, if they have the data up on base space or another avenue, they can go from having the data to having submission-ready genomes uh, within an hour. And the, the agility that comes with being in, in a contracting role or in a, I guess, private industry role is, is phenomenal. You know, we can get labs that have you know, very limited experience or capacity for, for whole genome sequencing and bioinformatics. And just like that, with a little bit of work, get them up and going. You're going to, you're going to suffer the same problem I have um, where somebody brings up the podcast about a month later, which is when this <laughs> is going to air and you're going to know yeah. a lot more at your job at that point. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny, but, but yeah, but, yeah. So like standard input files that, that the community you know, is, is uh, familiar with fast queue, fast days, metadata um, it, with the SARS-CoV-2 focus. It's, you know, generally the, the workflows, at least we have available, it's Arctic V3 tiled amplicon uh, fast queues. And then the metadata required for data submission to GISAID or GenBank. And again, e even that uh, that level of uh, data submission to repositories, that, that is a major challenge that, that a lot of labs are, uh, are facing. And I think in the UK and also in Canada, again, there's that centralized model where everyone just kind of sends the data to, to a single specialist and they're able to, to curate the metadata and format things. And, and get going from there. We don't necessarily have that at our disposal at, at the US, just based on how our, our public health and government infrastructure is designed. So there was an absolute need to identify a way where we can distribute those capabilities to different laboratories. And like Curtis said, like within an hour, we can get laboratories to do that exactly. So we can get them to perform the genomic characterization, uh, assembly and, and lineage and clade typing of SARS-CoV-2 samples that we can prep the metadata for GSAID and GenBank submission, and then also start performing the uh, genomic epidemiology through the use of the, the auger algorithms. Yeah, I mean, you're so right there. It is so difficult just to submit data. And even, you know, with COG UK having a centralized database and submission system, it's still a pain and it still doesn't work necessarily very smoothly. And it still requires constantly talking to the people in the archives to fix yeah. it up and emails and whatnot. So I've yeah. got how many, you know, small little lab who does, you know, it's their first time sequencing. It's, it's just, uh, it's a huge barrier. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm also involved in the Public Health Alliance for uh, Genomic Epidemiology. And, and, you know, there's, there's obviously a huge focus on how we, we also include other countries that, that have not been a part of this conversation yet and getting them resources to be able to perform these kind of analysis and data sharing. 
I know it sounds like we work for Terra here, but I really can't praise them enough in terms of providing a platform that enables us to do that for, for countries. Um, like, for example, like I said, CDC Thailand that we're working with and other countries uh, that, that we're starting to be involved with uh, through, through the Phage Consortium in, in Africa and South America and everything else in between. This is really like this was the goal ever since, you know, we, we started, you know, five years ago in public health bioinformatics is distributing these kinds of resources and getting the capabilities in different laboratories without necessarily having to hire people who, who've spent a decade in the in the field. You know, you want public health scientists to focus on public health information, not, you know, is my library dependencies appropriate in my version and Docker containers, all these, you want that all abstracted away. And that's what Terra has allowed us to do in also, I might add in an open source community kind of way. So everything we write is on GitHub. Everything is, is freely available, transparent and uh, available to, to the entire community. Well said. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, in terms of end caps and things like that. Yeah. I, I think I've had a pretty wild career in that uh, the timing of things coming out of grad school, um, in, you know, having learned a specific science, right? Like I, I sometimes make the joke that, you know, our whole field, you know, of infectious disease bioinformatics, so you had that one international conference of ASMNGS in DC. And like, we didn't even really fill up the main ballroom, right? And that was like our entire community. But now we're kind of at the forefront of geopolitical decision-making and we're like the small uh, group of people who have that specialized skill. So this is kind of our, our turn at bat here. Um, and it's been incredibly rewarding just pursuing this field out of curiosity and a desire to collaborate and, and, and better the community. Um, and if there's any you know students or, or even academics or, or other professionals listening to this thing, we need more talent. We need more people who are curious uh, about these technologies at the computer science level, at the you know training level, at the uh, applications of, of using a software like Terra. With Theogen Genomics, we we are so exposed to the need and the in the in the shortcomings of of having the the technical expertise to support this work. You know, not only in the U.S. but globally. Um, so. Uh, if there's anyone who with any kind of inclination uh, for, for bioinformatics, you know, lean into it because this is a field that, that only seems to be growing. Thanks. And, and Curtis, do you have any uh, any last thoughts? Um, I don't think so. Just it's been awesome to be on this podcast. It's, you know, it's, it's an honor to be on here. Uh, so thank you for the invitation for having us. It's, it's been great. Wonderful. We've been really happy having you on. And thanks for listening to the Microbial Bioinformatics podcast. Our guests today were Curtis Kapsack and Kevin Libowit, and you guys really tied everything together from last time with the containers and, and how you went through college and grad school and chose the paths that you went on. Very interesting. So thank you for sharing your stories with us. Yeah, and thank you guys for giving us this platform to, you know, uh, to speak about our careers. Thank you guys for all the work you've done in the community before Curtis and I got here, you know, so we, we stand on the shoulders of giants, which, you know, in our eyes, we include you guys, you know, uh, Rory and, you know, live set, those are the tools that, that started our careers. So it's pretty cool to be uh, at this stage, being a speak to you guys as, uh, as peers in, in some respects. So thank you guys too. Thank you all so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and like us on iTunes or Google play. And if you don't like the podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.